The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife. Save the environment. Save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and here we are, 13 days into a brand new year, and almost heading a quarter of the way into this century. It's time to take stock of where we are, and time enough yet with a multitude of opportunities ahead to make a difference for this chapter in the history books. The question is, will we? Our Wild World is a resource, a hub, a font of information about what's happening in our wild world. Not even just our wild world, but our world. From Africa to Europe to Asia and to right here at home in the USA. This program asks you, dear listener, to expand your horizons as you reduce your footprint. I figure the more we know about what we have done, what we are learning, what we need to know, the more we'll be able to be the humans we wish to be. As this year moves forward, we're going to expand our horizons too. We're searching for answers to the questions we all have, and by many accounts, they are out there. The trouble is, although our world hasn't expanded and actually is becoming smaller as we go more and more global and there are more and more people, there are more and more people to help us dig deeper into the great knowledge banks of the human mind, which has turned out to be exceptionally adept at finding out how things work. The flip side to this is that we don't always use the best wisdom that we have at hand before we start digging more rabbit holes that perhaps we shouldn't as we learn more about the unintended consequences of our past and long-term actions. So that's our goal here, to bring the news, the headlines, and the discoveries to you, connecting the dots to the big picture, with experts, commentary, experiences, stories, science-based, evidence-based, and most of all, wisdom-based, so as to learn from our mistakes and make a better future for all of us, and not just us humans either. As we've come to learn over the past half century, and more recently through this program, when we make the world better to benefit us, we will also make it better for everything and everyone else, rather than stay on the trend that we've been acting over the past half century, which in the end, my friends, hasn't helped us much. All you need to do is look at the various headlines, the science, and it's abundantly apparent that we've gotten ourselves into a bit of a mess and a bind. 
What we need to focus on now, this decade and this century, is to bring our world back into balance and ourselves along with it. This is our opportunity to be brighter, better, and pull up our bootstraps and work together. In fact, we're going to have to. Our very existence will depend upon it. The more we ask our neighbors how they view what's going on, the more we realize we are not alone in asking. While many seek spiritual perspectives, the desire for practical suggestions and realistic information abounds. We want to know what we can do, something that we can wrap our heads around and thus be able to take action. The ways we can bring about a union between the science we know and the policies that are being legislated. What is truly evident now is that we each have a choice. Either we find effective ways to contribute to making changes now, or we will have to sacrifice with unbearable losses later. We now know that our connection and relationship to animals is as old as our species. We used to worship them for what they provided us. Now we are headed on a course of industrializing them for our needs and benefit alone. This isn't working out so well either. With my guest, Philip, Professor Philip Tedeschi, the, with the Institute for Human and Animal Connections, we highlighted the growing shift and changing paradigm that we do understand that our relationship to animals is critical to our well-being and that they are indeed many times a part of our family unit or our children, either literally or, or figuratively as a member of our personal circle but furthermore as members of our living and functioning world. We know now that how we treat animals is not only a reflection of who and what we are, but will open doors to the tremendous shifts needed in our policies, that the ramifications and consequences of our relationships to our non-human neighbors will have deep and lasting effects for our very future and survival. Some good news, Philip will be joining us again in February to talk about a whole new program called Colorado Link, which addresses through core levels of clinical psychiatry and social work that the relationships between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence, the mistreatment of children and elder, elders, and criminal behavior is deeply linked, and the human-animal bond is integral to, in, excuse me, integral to a healthy society. That when we look at violence and cruelty to others from the perspective of a health and public safety standpoint, it becomes critical that we learn to recognize and early identify and accurately assess offending behaviors that will produce effective interventions that will reduce and or prevent future violence toward both humans and animals throughout our community, thus improving our sense of humanity. Our current culture seems to glorify violence in all its forms. It is everywhere throughout our world news, our relationships to each other and cultures, through our entertainment and programming, and recognizing this is a very important step forward. Think back through our history of child soldiers who knew nothing but war. Is this what we want to teach our youngsters through our cartoons, programs, and games? What are the role models we are teaching, the heroes we aspire to? They used to be firemen, policemen, president, or doctor. Do we want our children to be Beavis and Butthead? 
To believe that social acceptance requires disrespect, a loss of ethics and values, the loss of close interpersonal communication for conflict resolution, and that isolation in a virtual world will help us face the challenges ahead? I think not. That currently to gain peers and status and equality, we must don the cloak of murder for coolness. That in the real world, our actions hold no consequences, sheds no blood, and leaves laughter in its wake. That rather than taking personal responsibility for our actions and behavior, we shift the blame, thus creating further police states. What we need is to make healthy alternatives readily available and participation without stigmatism. Avenues to help parents and youths, couples and individuals through all walks of life to find positive role models that hold at the very core the teachings of compassion for self and for others, especially animals, and that this truly is the definition of being human, no matter what gender, sexual preference, or culture we belong to. For the future that is rapidly coming down upon us, we need to feel comfortable and accepted as a part of the creation of solutions, of societies and varied cultures which advocate for social justice and one that includes compassion and nurturing as a fundamental characteristic of being human and a prerequisite for living on earth. More and more we idolize and long for the good old days. (coughs) Excuse me. We reinvent them with computer graphics and cartoons and fashion. But the only thing good about them, really, was that they were simpler. Let us not forget World War I and World War II, the Cold War and Vietnam, all which seem to have turned out to be the training grounds for finding bigger, larger, and more distant ways of hurting each other and laying destruction upon our earth at the push of a button, rather than dealt out personally. We have lost touch with the personal aspect of violence until it happens for real and we wonder in shock how this could have ever happened to us. If we want simpler times, then it is up to us to create them. If we want less violence, less war, and a better world, then it is up to us to teach these values, that a respect for life is fundamental to our humanity and to our survival. That's not so complicated, is it? Or perhaps it is. That's what a paradigm shift means. When you can look outside the box you're in and you don't like what you see, then you have the ability and the tools at hand to find a different solution. In 2013, landmark cases in the headlines announced many major shifts of what is socially acceptable. Let's call them victories in how we define our relationships to each other and to our non-human neighbors. One of these paradigm shifts is how we decide what makes a person a person. Our previous definition allotted certain guaranteed rights and privileges to persons, which were considered only to be humans, people. But as we learn more about the complex societies, cultures, and emotional lives of other mammals that coexist on this earth with us, both terrestrial and marine, we have learned to adjust this definition of personhood. That personhood goes beyond being human. That in recognizing humanity, we also recognize that which dehumanizes us and works to remove that and we work to remove that from our social curriculum and realm of what is acceptable, making a social contract of what is and what is not acceptable. 
We have gone through most of our history thinking that we are separate from animals, special by design that makes us superior to all other life. We have used, in fact depended upon, this mindset to allow ourselves to debase anything other than us and justify cruelty and abuse and centralize our definitions of self and the mind by counting and cataloging our differences. What we have learned, though, through research, publications, evidence, and science, is that we are not so different after all, and that much will be gained by studying those aspects of life that all beings have in common. The crossovers where human and non-human, and especially our animal, animal neighbors, overlap. Zubiquity, that's the term we're coming up with now, what we humans have in common with all life, the term and the path to our future, and the key to understanding how we fit into the scheme of all life with all living creatures. We know now that the similarities between life forms is much more apparent than our differences, but it will also be through understanding, accepting, and nurturing both the similarities and the differences that we will be able to protect and live and secure our world, wilderness, urban centers, agriculture, and livestock management. We are all one big living organism interdependent upon each other and the living skin and breathing lungs of this green and blue planet, the only one of its kind as far as our current science tells us. We have no other choice, folks. We learn to live on this earth in perpetuity or we risk risk losing it. The alternative is unbearable to think about. Humanity is on a journey of discovery that will reshape our approach to life. By incorporating a zubiquitous perspective, we find more and more connections between the human and animal worlds and the ability to ask and learn from questions such as, do animals get breast cancer? Anxiety-induced fainting spells, sexually transmitted diseases. Do they suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorders, bulimia, addictions? Scientists and doctors are finding that the answers are astonishing. People are very much like animals, and we have plenty of evidence to support it. Dinosaurs suffered from brain cancer. Koalas catch chlamydia. Reindeer seek narcotic escape and hallucinogenic mushrooms. Stallions self-mutilate. Gorillas experience clinical depression. Do these disorders sound familiar? We have learned already, and there is much material evidence and science available to speak to the truth of this. And coming up, we'll hear from many special guests throughout the year, that in knowing, regardless of us, the animals we share this earth with also have a sense of self. Many are autonomous and independent thinkers, have culture and deep relationships that have nothing whatsoever to do with us. <clears throat> that our non-human neighbors, whom we are watching, are also watching and learning from and responding to us. When the intentional onlooker crosses the boundary and ignores the safety warning, they have consented to giving up a certain amount of guaranteed security. The barrier, the sign, and the fence is a security warning. We know it means danger cross at your risk. And yet, despite this warning, it seems that we want to cross this boundary, push the limits, and quite often, in fact, do so. I burn up brain cells trying to figure out why. And thus I present my guest hosts from a multitude of research, books, evidence, data, and we are learning the answers. Our Western lifestyle 
and model is in need of a radical wake-up call. But get this, we've been given that clarion call since 1960. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, E.O. Wilson's The Sinking Ark, and the many excellent compilations and investigations that are available today. It's right in front of us everywhere we look. We know the facts. If you knew you had the single most important life-saving thing on the entire planet, wouldn't you want to share it? Let people know everything it does, how it will ease all of our dis-ease. Well, folks, each of us is that life-saving thing. And it's going to take all of us participating in as numerous ways that we each represent when we take ownership, accountability, and responsibility for our choices and our lifestyle. But not only that, a responsibility for the consequences, intended or unintended, all of them, good the bad, the ugly. The alarm bells are ringing and it's time to stop pushing the snooze button, get up and go to work. The answers are out there and all we have to do is ask and we shall find. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? From our innermost feelings to our outermost presence, be it religion and science, natural history or human history, we now know how a lot of things work. From knowing this, we have learned that we have just begun to understand the magnificence of all creation, and we know we are losing the physical manifestation of life faster than we are capable of cataloging it. Whether your belief system is God, the universal force, Krishna or Allah or Jesus or Uller, how can we possibly believe that any man-made, human-like creator would condone what we are doing to each other and to ourselves and to this living earth? Pardon me here, no matter what your belief system is, all beliefs are based on being alive. And being alive for us means waking up tomorrow and having an earth to live on. So with that little thought, we're going to take a short break. Stick with us and we'll be right back with some things that are coming up in 2014. If you'd like to email and ask a question, uh, please email us at wildize at wildeyes.org or call in and ask a question. I'd love to hear from you. That number is 866-472-5788. So stick with us. Email me. Call in, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. 
In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Today, we're talking about what's happening. And what's happening is a growing sense of connectedness. And this connectedness, connectedness is connectedness, I'm sorry, is coming from a sense of isolation that has been created over the past several decades through our technology and through our uh, interaction with self rather than others. But we know enough now between research data, behavior, and evidence, it all tells us that animals and nature herself have responded to this utterly new thing, us, that has dropped in, walked in, flew in, or fell into its lap, a changed form of humanity that considers the laws of man higher than the universal laws and the laws of nature or the laws of spirituality, whatever name you choose to call it. What we know now, but seem hell-bent on ignoring, is that we are not separate from nature. That, if anything, we are even more bound by the consequences of what we have done to our world and to each other, and the vast network and unraveling of the unintended consequences we are facing as a result of this misconception. Just to give a little highlight, Rhino deaths in South Africa alone topped the charts in 2013 at 946. If that isn't bad enough, we're facing one of the most horrendous decisions I've ever encountered in my entire life. That it is actually a reality being discussed where we humans are looking at the farming of our wildlife, tigers, lions, rhinos, and more, for the sheer economic greed and benefit of a few humans, governments, and nations that seem to have forgotten they are peopled by individuals and animals who have who do have guaranteed rights just in being living creatures created of and a part of this earth. We are actually deciding whether we should begin trading and monetizing our remaining truly wild species to provide for human frivolity and economic benefit, and that this may be the only way to save them. Have we lost our minds? Yes, there is data and history to tell us that wildlife in limited space in competition with the needs of humans must be managed. But where is the inclusion of the facts and evidence and the science and our own gut experiences come in that tells us that we know that animals as individuals are as complex in feeling as we humans? Or do we now want the decision makers, the creators of who lives and who dies and why, along with our other misdemeanors, to take over? 
Oh, how easy it is to lump these beings together as a commodity, for then we simply can ignore the ramifications and consequences of our presumed special status on this earth as better and more deserving of all the other resources than anything else. What does this tell us about ourselves and how we view the world, our wildness, wildlife, and wilderness? Once the wilderness is gone, how will we bring it back? All economic and natural history tells us that it is much easier and far less expensive to save it in situ, that means in place, rather than to try and replace it. Perhaps I am naive, perhaps I live in a fantasy world of some sort of utopia rising, but I honestly do not think there is enough money in the world to fix the mess we're in, because it's not about money. It's about people. Western civilization is out of control and heading toward a smashing collapse. We're children run amok in the candy store. There are momentous books, studies, and evidence that says the same thing. For an example, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel. The more and more we look for stuff to fill our lives, the less we are connected to that which makes our lives, the living earth and the creatures we live with. I really didn't think when I was full of youth and idealism back in the 60s that I would see the world as it is today. I am continuously astonished and amazed by my fellow humans. I appreciate the beauty that we often show and shine and when we have that bright light standing out amongst the masses, but I am also astonished at our stupidity, our grace, and our ability to adapt, even though we often do this kicking and screaming. We are very good at adapting. From our innermost feelings to our outermost presence, be it through religion, science, and natural history, we know how a lot of things work. From knowing this, we have learned that we have just begun to understand the magnificence of all creation, and we know we are losing it rapidly. So, what are we going to do about it? What are we doing about it? A lot. So here's where I'd like to head into some of what's coming up in 2014 through my special guests. Our Wild World is bringing you an incredible variety of guests from authors to NGOs and working projects to exposés about as what is happening around, happening around our wild world. Today, I'm going to provide you some highlights and background on upcoming topics that will be coming up over the coming months. This program, too, Our Wild World, is reformatting a little bit as we broaden our scope from Africa to, well, our whole wild world. Last week, our guest was Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado at Boulder, He's made, who has made major and long-term contributions to the field of animal behavior, but also the changing mindset with which people must view the animal mind and the world around us, that which, that which doesn't resolve around our very being. With more than his 800 published scientific and popular essays and 25 books, Animal Behavior, Cognitive Ethology, 
That's the study of animal minds. And behavioral ecology is a blossoming field. And it is expanding our boundaries that if we can break free of the theoretical prejudices, we may come to better understand ourselves and the other animals with whom we share this planet and thus build our compassionate footprint into compassionate conservation on the larger scale. My point today is that providing knowledge and expertise, we provide information so as to make better decisions. We have choices. Our wild world is full of a diverse array of species, all interdependent upon each other and for which we are dependent upon for our own sustainability. I especially refer to our carnivores and predators, large and small. They are all under threat. As we... Eliminate and extirpate the predators in competition for our resources. We are manipulating, fundamentally changing our ecosystems. What predators eat and what agriculture needs to thrive and what livestock and people also need to thrive is called ecosystems. And those are everywhere. Large landscape to small ecotomes, those small and discrete zones, those soft borders where one system meets another, such as the river to the bank, the ocean to the shore, the forest to the plains. It is the breakdown and loss of these ecosystems, large and small, their abundance that makes up what we call diversity, from variety to homogeny. That is happening at an unprecedented rate across the globe, whether it be in Europe, Russia, Asia, Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam, or you guessed it, right here at home in the good old U.S. of A. Next week, my guest will be the author and wildlife investigative journalist William Stolzenberg, who wrote the book Where the Wild Things Were. We'll talk about his ground ba- that groundbreaking book, uh, Where the Wild Things Were, Life, Death, and Ecological Wreckage in a Land of Vanishing Predators, which is a focused investigative journey toward understanding our topmost predators and the chaos in the wake of their absence. In Where the Wild, Thing Were, Where the Wild Things Were, Will takes us on a startling tour through the bizarre, impoverished landscapes and worlds of reason that we need to rethink our relationship to our top carnivores and what they're so having recently gone missing from our web of life means to us and to our ecosystem. As Will states in the opening and pages of Where the Wild Things Were, and I quote, In nature, predators are not only inherently rare, as evidenced by their tiny perch on top of the food chain, but we are now making them fashionably rare at the hands of modern human society that slaughters them blatantly out of contempt and obliquely through the wholesale destruction of their homes and habitat. In 2008, when he wrote that book, We haven't changed much. In fact, we've gone further toward eradicating all that competes with us. Now, Will is focused on cougars, and we'll get a sneak peek of his new investigative work. In preparation for a conversation with Will, I began to reread where the wild things were. And on the frontispiece, I wrote, quote, December 08, almost a new year. This is the best and saddest book I've ever read. Well, Since then, I've read a great many more, just as good, just as astonishing, and just as sad. I've mentioned them here, 
Hope Beneath Our Feet, and our guest last week, Mark Beckoff's edited anthology, Ignoring Nature No More, and my previous guest, Julian Rattermeyer's Killing for Profit. We are on a path of destruction, folks, and we have to turn this around. Are you seeing the trend here, listeners? What all these stellar books have in common is what we humans have gone about doing to our world. And though this sadness and despair permeates my soul these days, and I find I am beginning to sound like a broken record, I still search and do find the hope that tells me all is not lost. The hope is there. It is shining like diamonds in mud, there to be plucked and held in treasures. And treasured, it shines in each of us as we open our eyes and decide to make those changes in our lives that combined with our neighbor, our family, and our community will together make the difference we need. Unfortunately, we still must weed our way through a lot of chaff to find them as we are kept numb and dumb by the ubiquitous programming all around us that we call entertainment. We have become very, very good at creating the chaff, all the ways to keep a population engaged in inverting our eyes to the reality all around us. We turn away from the gory images, the horror, the sadness, thinking it has nothing to do with our everyday life, the urban concrete and steel. But, my friends, it has everything to do with us, and I beg you to stop shielding your eyes from it nor the eyes of our youth. Our youth will be our saviors. In 25 years, they will be making the decisions about the earth they have inherited. Let's begin to making decisions now about the earth they, we will be giving them and the culture that we are bequeathing to them. That is something you and I can do every day and engage our neighbors and community and leaders with us. As we watch stunning nature programs sponsored by the very core of what is destroying our nature and keeping us fat and arrogant and lazy, our lust for stuff, cars, materialistic junk we really do not need, that junk depends upon the limited fossil fuels we have, which we must dig ever deeper to uncover and are more costly and dangerous to get at and what we are betting against in doing so. Not that we cannot create the technology to do so, but the risks are ever greater when this technology fails. You know what I'm talking about. Exxon, BP, Katrina, tsunamis of greater destruction, climate shifts at the heart of ever-increasingly severity of storms we create. Did you see the news of the collapsing coastlines around England this past holiday? You name it, and you will pretty much find the manipulating hand of man is somewhere near the bottom of the disaster. Further good reading, for those of, who, of you who like a bit more science-based technical reading, there is Turbro and Jason Turbro and uh, excuse me, Turbro and Estes, Trophic Cascades, The Changing Dynamics of Predator and Prey Relationships. In 1983, Turbro wrote, Successful predation is a rare event. At most, it can occur once in the lifetime of the prey. For an animal that produces only one or two offspring a year, such losses would be anything but trivial. It couldn't help but change the way that species and society conducted itself. Well, as the world's top predator now, and only because of our wildly creative imaginations and variations to bring death upon all around us, that we are putting everything at risk. What hasn't changed is very basic. 
You put a person out on a field with a lion or the full elements of nature and all the old fears come rushing right back in. Without our mechanisms of death or imagined protections, we are nowhere near being the top predators that survive around us. We have moved into every other being's landscape and living room and taken up homesteading to the detriment of ourselves and our neighbors. And we're not stopping there. In the following week after um, Will Stolzenberg, my guest will be Carter Niemeyer, the author of Wolfer, one of the first whistleblowers on our very own U.S. Department of Agricultural Agency Wildlife Services, an agency that has gone rogue and out of control. I've talked about this before. I've strongly urged, begged, and recommended that anyone everywhere sign the petition to Congress to defund our wildlife services. I strongly urge my listeners to read both Will's book and uh, Niemeyer's book, Wolfer and Where the Wild Things Were. It gives you a great idea of where we've been, what's happening, where we are, and where we're headed if we stay on this path. You will be amazed and aghast at what we humans have accomplished by manipulating our landscape for the benefit of us alone and how that has ultimately created a mass of trophic cascades and unintended consequences that have depleted not just the wonderful, amazing diversity of wild things, but of our ability to sustain our lives and livelihoods. From there, we're going to have Brooks Fahey, uh, president and founder of Predator Defense. He's going to join us and we'll delve deeply into just how despicable this taxpayer-funded, government-sanctioned, state-incentivized agency, Wildlife Services, has become. I've previously discussed this many times, but rather than take my word for it, we're going to hear it directly from the source. We're going to learn some about the many incredible strides we've made in science to help us clean up our act, how animal and man's best friend, the dog, is also the best friend to many of our diminishing species. We'll have Pete Coppolillo and Working Dogs for Conservation, and I've got a request out to the scientists who are doing the DNA testing to track and uh, flesh out uh, ivory uh, when we when ivory is seized, so that we can find out where those elephants came from, pinpoint it. The same is being done with rhino horn and with whales. This kind of work, the do- working dogs for conservation and DNA tracking and testing, will help boost law enforcement agencies the, around the world and how they can help us protect species from elephants to whales. And on that note, we're off to another short break. Stick with me. We're talking about connectedness. So connect with me. Give me an email, call in, and I hope to hear from you. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're talking about reconnecting. We're going to have to reconnect with to each other and our world and find the links between conservation and public health. And we'll be hearing from voices from Uganda to Botswana to the U.S. to explore and understand the factors that influence the emergence and persistence and re-emerging diseases at the human and wildlife interface. Importantly here is if is that even if you don't often think about wildlife or you live in a city and think that its life or death, extinction or existence doesn't matter to you, we will show to you that wildlife does matter. As we move toward the middle of the century, we have some very important decisions to make, unprecedented challenges and unprecedented opportunities, and we need to start making some decisions now. We need to begin thinking broader and more inclusively of all our neighbors, human and non-human. No matter where we live, what color we are, what God we believe in, we all live here on this pale blue dot. As As astronomer Carl Sagan wrote in 1997 in his book, The Pale Blue Dot, and I quote, From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest, but for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam 
The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only no world, known world so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To Mr. Sagan, it underscored our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish this pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. You can find a reprint of this and a video on YouTube. Listen well and look at the image of how small we are in relation to the cosmos. Furthermore, throughout our human history, there are an astonishing array of historical figures, an impressive collection of accomplished individuals who are revered for their scientific, literary, or artistic achievements. In fact, we have based or grown much of today's thoughts, science, and behavior models upon the thoughts and writings of these great beginnings. These people are heroes to many. Perhaps we can strive to be a little more like many of them, for if we continue to value their perspective on important issues, it's worthwhile to know that these smart, savvy people spoke out, loudly and often, in support of the welfare and well-being of animals. I'm going to give you a little history lesson. Plutarch, from 46 to 120 AD, he was a Greek philosopher, biographer, priest, and magistrate. And I quote, But for the sake of some little mouthful of flesh, we deprive a soul of the sun and light, and of that proportion of life and time it had been born into the world to enjoy. I, for my part, wonder what sort of feeling, mind, or reason that man was possessed, who first to pollute his mouth with gore, and allow his lips to touch the flesh of, flesh of a murdered being, who spread his table with the mangled form of dead bodies, and claimed as daily food and dainty dishes what but we know were beings endowed with movement, with perception, and with voice." Then we have Plato from 428 B.C. to 348 B.C., Greek philosopher and writer. The gods created certain kinds of beings to replenish our bodies. They are the trees and the plants and the seeds. Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519. We all know who he was, Italian polymath, inventor, artist, and writer. He says, The time will come when men such as I will look upon the murder of animals as they now look upon the murder of men. 
Truly, man is the king of beasts, for his brutality exceeds them. We live by the death of others. We are burial places. My body will not be a tomb for other creatures. Buddha, 563 B.C. to 483 B.C. Spiritual philosopher whose teachings became the foundation for Buddhism. It is more important to prevent animal suffering rather than to sit and contemplate the evils of the universe praying in the company of priests. Benjamin Franklin, 1706 to 1790, American founding father, author, statesman, scientist, and inventor. He says, my refusing to eat meat occasioned an inconveniency, and I have been frequently chided for my singularity. But my light repast allows for greater progress, for greater clearness of head and quicker comprehension. Flesh eating is unprovoked murder. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803 to 1882, American writer, poet, and lecturer. He says, you have just dined, and however scrupulously the slaughterhouse is concealed, in the graceful distance of miles, there is complicity. Charles Darwin, English author and naturalist from 1809 to 1882. He says, there is no fundamental difference between man and animals in their ability to feel pleasure and pain, happiness and misery. Mark Twain, 1835 to 1910, American author and lecturer. I believe I am not interested to know whether vivisection produces results that are profitable to the human race or doesn't. To know that the results are profitable to the race would not remove my hostility to it. The pain which it inflicts upon unconsenting animals is the basis of my enmity towards it, and it is to me sufficient justification of the enmity without looking further. Henry David Thoreau, 1817 to 1862, American author, philosopher, naturalist, and abolitionist. I have no doubt that it is a part of the destiny of the human race in its gradual improvement to leave off eating animals as surely as the savage tribes have left off eating each other when they came in contact with the more civilized. He continues, a farmer says to me, you cannot live on vegetable food solely for it furnishes nothing to make bones with. And so he religiously devotes a part of his day to supplying his system with the raw material of bones, walking all the while he talks behind his oxen, which, with vegetable-made bones, jerk him and his lumbering plow along in spite of every obstacle. Then we have Leo Tolstoy, 1828-1910, to Russian novelist and playwright. A man can live and be healthy without killing animals for food. Therefore, if he eats meat, he participates in taking animal life merely for the sake of his appetite, and to so act is immoral. If a man earnestly seeks a righteous life, his first act of abstinence is from animal food. For as long as there are slaughterhouses, there will be battlefields. Queen Victoria, 1837 to 1901, monarch of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. There is, however, another subject on which the Queen feels most strongly, and that is, is this horrible, brutalizing, unchristian-like vivisection. It really must not be permitted. It is a disgrace to civilized country. George Bernard Shaw. 1856 to 1950, Irish playwright, journalist, and winner of the 1925 Nobel Prize for Literature. While we ourselves are the living graves of murdered beasts, how can we expect any ideal conditions on this earth? 
Animals are my friends, and I don't eat my friends. Albert Schweitzer, 1875 to 1965, German-French philosopher. There slowly grew up in me an unshakable conviction that we have no right to inflict suffering and death on another living creature unless there is some unavoidable necessity for it, and that we ought all of us to feel what a horrible thing it is to cause suffering and death out of mere thoughtlessness. The thinking man must oppose all cruel customs, no matter how deeply rooted in tradition and surrounded by a halo. When we have a choice, we must avoid bringing torment and injury into the life of another, even the lowliest creature. To do so is to renounce our manhood and shoulder a guilt which nothing justifies. Think of the suffering of which you spare yourself the sight. So we've gone through several. There's more uh, examples. Um, I'm sort of running out of time, but I'll give a couple more. Jimmy Stewart, 1908 to 1997, American actor and U.S. Air Force Brigadier General. Animals give me more pleasure through the viewfinder of a camera than they ever did in the crosshairs of a gun sight. And after I finished shooting, my unarmed victims are still around for others to enjoy. I have developed a deep respect for animals. I consider them fellow living creatures with certain rights that should not be violated any more than those of human. And we come to the Dalai Lama of Tibet from 1950 to the present, spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism and winner of the 1989 Nobel Peace Prize. Now, with regard to animals, they not only have life, but feelings of pleasure and pain too. We should treat their lives with respect, which we Tibetans are accustomed to do. This is something we all, the human race, this species, should learn to do, to learn to value and respect life. By doing so, we show that we respect ourselves and our earth. We know now that this is not New Age thinking, that this movement and paradigm shift to consider the animal mind and the animal as a neighbor and our non-human as a part of our world. Our far forefathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers had a handle on the world because they knew they depended on it. In our quest for modernization and consumption... We, in our present day, have forgotten these important lessons. In all our glorious advances, technological, medical, and physical, these are words our society and culture have yet to take to heart. On the small scale, our daily dramas seem all important. Our national headlines and politics will shape our fate, both in relationship to each other and to other nations and people. But really, overall, we have only one earth, and somehow, some way, we must begin to learn how to live amongst each other and with each other if we'd like to continue to live and thrive. And that thriving includes all the life around us. It's a wise idea to revisit every now and then where we began, to look through the microscope and through the telescope, begin at our past through the luxury of our vast written and visual history, to slow down our speeded up world of instantaneous gratification and overconsumption, and regain some perspective. And most importantly, stop this headlong drive into oblivion. We need to all begin regaining a sense of self and self-control, 
to revisit our humble beginnings upon this wondrous earth, for without which we would never be where we are today. For if we continue our ways that we seem to hold so dear, these models that have become recently deeply entrenched and embedded in our cultures, and to call it tradition, we will have neither traditions, nor culture, nor world left to hold dear. So what I'd like from you, dear listeners, lovers of our wild world, is to let me know what you want to learn. So give me a call, send us an email, and over the next year, I would love to cover your questions and help find answers. Face it, folks, we have some challenges ahead, but we can and will face them for we have to. There is no longer a choice. The effects of our Western-developed industrial lifestyle has encumbered the rest of the world with a burden that cannot be faced alone. So, on that kind of a note, I wish you a happy new year. It's time we get with the program, stop acting like we don't know better, and become all we can be. To learn from our ancestors of not so long ago and to leave behind us as we walk through this world a better future for which we will always be considered the ancestors. This is our opportunity to draw a line in the the sand and say yes, this is who I want to be and to be remembered for. Thank you for listening. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 